0: And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Much has been made of London as a city that's embraced the LGBTQ plus community in the past half a century. But what about other cities in the UK? From the Bohemian Brighton to Military Plymouth. Distinctive cultures have been forged in many places beyond the nation's capital. In this episode, Rachel Dinning speaks to Matt Cook and Alison Oram about their new book, Queer Beyond London, which explores four English cities from the 1960s to the noughties and looks at the lives of LGBTQ individuals who live there.
3: Welcome to the History Extra Podcast, Matt and Alison. Um, I thought we could start by you both briefly introducing yourselves and your areas of interest. So Matt, should we start with you? Would you like to introduce
4: yourself? Sure, yeah, My name is Matt Cook and I'm a, a professor of Modern History at Birkbeck, University of London, and I've worked on actually mainly L- London's queer history. but uh, so this, uh, this was a bit of a departure to go uh, to go out into the into the into the regions. The complete, um, I, the complete opposite. The complete opposite. And I, uh, yeah, I mean, I got, I've got increasingly interested in kind of public history and oral history. I started off as a Victorianist um, and my more recent projects have come much more up to date. So this project goes from 1965 to more or less the present. So it's the, it's the most contemporary of the history projects I've worked on. And it's been fantastic doing this kind of oral history Work work with community uh, history projects and groups and so on. So it's a it's been a really exciting kind of departure in that way.
3: Amazing. And Alison, what about you?
5: Well, my name's Alison Orham. I'm um, I'm a semi-retired historian now. I'm associated. I'm connected to the Institute of Historical Research, which is part of the University of London. And I'm also Professor Emerita at Leeds Beckett University, where I used to work full time as Professor of Social and cultural history, including looking at um, some issues in local queer history and talking, speaking to local groups in Leeds. And um, and as Matt says, it's quite an interesting challenge doing contemporary history because, after all, we have both lived through a lot of this period of time, <laughs> and perhaps me more so than Matt, being about 10 years, at least 10 years older. But, you know, the 1980s isn't the unknown past in a way so I've worked a lot on lesbian and gay and queer history of of Britain and I'm also particularly interested in queer heritage so I've worked a lot on country houses and how they interpret LGBTQ histories I've worked with historic England and so on so that's a second but very important interest of mine in queer history
4: and and in fact we worked together on a guidebook for the national trust so that was it oh, that yes, was kind we of our, yes. our first joint project
5: <laughs> that was wasn't it <laughs>
3: but today we're talking about your new book which is out on the 28th of june um, which is called queer beyond london and i wanted to start the podcast off talking about the title firstly because maybe you could tell me a bit about the history of the word queer specifically because it's you know different people have different opinions on it and it's been re- reclaimed um, in more recent years
4: I mean, I suppose the th- the thing to say about I mean, queer. First of all, you're right. It has a, has a quite a complicated history in a way. You know what a lot of older gay men will remember, especially as being is, is a, as as a term of really vile abuse. You know when they were being homophobically attacked and so on. So it's got this very difficult set of associations for a lot of a lot of lesbians and gays. It, it has a longer history than gay, so it stretches. It takes us further back, and it takes us further back to maybe a a sense of not such a specific sense of identity. So there's that sense of queer meaning odd or eccentric or slightly askance from from the norm rather than being in opposition to straight. And I think it's that kind of slightly more amorphous sense that clink that that kind of surrounds the the word queer that that kind of draws me and Alison and and actually a lot of historians and it it means that we can use it gay can be an anachronistic because you know if you use it sort of pre, well, pre-1960s, really. It's, it's, it's an anachronistic identity label, whereas queer in various ways stretches further back. I suppose the other thing to say about it is that gay, when it came into more common use in the 1970s, was very specifically politicised. And I think that kind of political oomph that, that um, gay had kind of faded a little bit. Uh, by the late 80s, early 90s, and queer picked up that radical edge. So there's a kind of, very much a kind of queer politics that was born in the in the 1990s. And it also got picked up academically as a term that could signal a kind of something that um, wasn't so wedded to ideas of identity. And I think that's really where Um, It's helpful to us because one of the things we wanted to do in the book was not only talk about people that identified as gay or lesbian or trans or bi, but people that were maybe associated with those networks or had casual sex or sometimes saw themselves in this way and other times didn't. So I think for us... And I'm speaking for Alison here, but you can correct me, Alison. It kind of did some work for us that if we'd use gay and lesbian or LGBT, it it would have had it would have framed the book in a slightly different way.
5: Yes, and I think that yes, in the 1990s, queer was reclaimed as a as a term, at least certainly by some activist groups, as a term to sort of throw back and say, yeah, we're queer and we're proud of it, and you know, we need social and political change. And then more recently it's been used. When I say recently, I suppose from well, people would have different views on this, but 2015-ish, it's been used much more widely. So LGBT came to have the Q added on the end of it. So I think that we've in the book, we've used it, well, partly as Matt says, as a as a way of getting in between that boundary or, or dissolving the boundary between LGBT and you know, straight or, or, or normal, um, but also very much very consciously as umbrella term, as a very inclusive term, so that it does include everybody within this term queer because after all, LGBTQ, it's had so many sort of additions to it, and it becomes a sort of longer and longer acronym. So we've stuck with LGBTQ. But I think I must say, yes, it is used very, very widely now by young people, especially, and that's great. But there are still those connotations. um, As Matt said, older gay men still remember it as a term of abuse. And also, I think some Identity groups, some lesbians, for example, feel that their specific identity is perhaps erased under this umbrella term of queer. So I think it's important to use the identity terms as well, very often when we're talking about people in the past, but it's certainly a really useful word that we want to use for the moment, but might yeah, but it sort of comes under question in some respects.
4: I think that's absolutely right. And what we've tried to do in the book is—is is actually we use queer as this umbrella, but we do use specific identity terms when they're appropriate to the person we're talking about. Because Alison's absolutely right. Because although we think it does function as an umbrella or can do, I do think it's still it's still gendered male more than it's gendered female, for example. And so I think I think for a lot of women, it's 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 a kind of it's it's a term that can can be occluding as well, so rather than inclusive.
3: That makes a lot of sense. Um, we sort of touched on a topic, actually, that I wanted to ask you about, which was that sometimes it matters what the individual wants to be to be referred to as. And so one of the challenges I find working in history is when we look back further than than what, what you've looked at in your book, say 100 or 200 years ago, um, and we see evidence of maybe an LGBTQ person, but they wouldn't have described themselves as such at the time. And it's how do we describe them now? You know, we we might say, oh, you know, he had relationships with men and there's evidence for that. So it seems fair to say he could have been been gay. But can we actually, is it fair to include people, this is slightly off topic, but I'm just interested in your thoughts on it, Um, people from hundreds of years ago labelling them in this way when they wouldn't have had the terminology to label themselves like that?
5: Well, I I think we have to, as historians, be, you know, try to look at all the evidence and see if they did call themselves by particular terms, because people often made up their own Terms or used what was the vocabularies that were in the culture at the time. So often you can find terms that they might have used. But I think here queer is useful because it's because of its slight vagueness. You know, if you say somebody was a gay man in the past or a lesbian, it has a much more sort of specific meaning, one that's often t- tied to the late 20th century. Whereas for all its it's also in some ways anachronistic. Queer has, is more is more flexible, really, because it it has these other it has these other meanings as well. So, I yeah, I think historians more and more we call ourselves historians looking at the queer past, and we we're not so worried about the anachronism. That's
3: fair. Um, And onto your book in more detail. So it's called It's Queer Beyond London. So we're looking at cities outside of London. Um, And for a long time, London's tended to be the centre of looking at LGBTQ history in this country. Um, Why has London always been such a focus? And why was it important for you to look beyond the capital?
4: I mean, I think in a way it was the obvious, it's always seemed the obvious place to start. It had the often the most visible subcultures. It was where, you know, there was a plentiful set of records about arrests and prosecutions. It's where political campaigning was seen to be most visible. It's also where queer events, queer people were most often, I suppose, picked up by media and literature and writing. So there was a kind of visibility that kind of, I suppose, snowballed around the capital. Um, and it's where people visited. But there was lots of people passing through. It was a, if you know, from the you know, if you think about the nineteenth century and the development of this kind of self-consciously modern city. So, it, this, so this idea of kind of modern identities and modernity and so on. So, for all sorts of reasons, I think homosexuality, queerness, then gayness became quite tightly associated with London. Um, and, and, and for all sorts of, you know, interesting and good reasons. But what also happened is that it then started to stand in for the national story. So in other words, the way in which people talked about London was as if that was the same for the rest of the United Kingdom. When, of course, you know, Scotland, Northern Ireland, in particular, even had different legal regimes. So, you know, these generalisations from one metropolis across the whole country were really problematic. And and the more I worked on London as well, uh, particularly for a book that I wrote about sort of eight or nine years ago called Queer Domesticities, I realised actually it was really difficult anyway to talk about London as a whole, that lives lived in Notting Hill or... In Brixton or in Islington were fundamental. Were shaped by the capital, but they were more shaped by the immediate local circumstances, what was available, who was living next door, you know, what was down the street, and it really awakened me to the importance of locality in the experience of identity and community. And I think that set me anyway on on the kind of path to think about locality more broadly and to think, well, you know, these places outside. Of London had their own economies, dem- demographics, geographies, and so on. And these things must have inflected or modulated the way people experience themselves and other people. And so there's a sense in which we wanted to talk about places physically beyond London, but also about ways of being queer that were beyond the model of the capital, you know, so, 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 so beyond in those two, two senses.
5: And I also think that not only in queer history, but in all kinds of histories, historians have sometimes, well, not only historians, have sometimes been a, a bit lazy. You know, London becomes the default. And although I'm a Londoner, I've worked in the North for many, many years and in, at different, in different, different jobs. And so you do have a different, you do, have, you do understand why, you know, Northerners, for example, are, but the same could be said to the West Country have this sense that stuff goes on in London and nobody really even thinks about regional the regions of England um and the other nations so you know there is this default to London issue while even in even in political terms yes legislation has been made in London government you know governments rule from london but they also rule locally you know there are local councils who have had a lot of influence on lgbtq histories some of the some some key lgbtq campaigns and organisations have started outside london especially in manchester for example where you saw where we saw the the first sort of out and proud versions of arguing for law reform back in the 1960s so yeah, you miss a lot by focusing mainly on London and seeing the national as 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 everything.
4: I think there's a, the 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 other part of this is also how fascinating it is to see London refracted through other places. So what London means from the point of view of people living in Plymouth or Brighton or Manchester or Leeds, you know, London sort of look slightly different from each of those places. And, and it was really fascinating to get a sense of that um, in the materials we were looking at and in the interviews we were listening to.
5: Although often, you know, a lot of the time, London was just ignored, wasn't it? Yeah, that, that's absolutely <laughs> So, you know, London was not the reference point. No. It was not the place that people thought of, yeah. possibly in Brighton yeah. because it's so near, yeah. but certainly in the, in the north of England yeah. and in Plymouth, it, um, you know, really isn't the reference point. You know, people think about other northern cities and their, their their metropolitan areas, their hinterlands much more. Yeah. So we, you know, so we had both worked in cities outside of London and and we were also very much aware of all the local LGBTQ local histories which were being gathered and um, uh, by local groups. So, you know, there are dozens, indeed, you know, well over 100 um, oral history projects in other parts of the country. And we wanted to really use that material and um, understand people's experience of change in, in their local cities. So it was also an opportunity to use some source material that... I think you know people locally are, are aware of, but aren't, but aren't necessarily aware of it being available in other places from a London-centric perspective.
3: And the cities that you did settle on in the end. So we've got Manchester, we've got Leeds, Birmingham, and Plymouth. What was it about these? It must mean, have been difficult narrowing down to four cities, firstly. But what was it about these four places that you thought would make fascinating historical case
4: studies? I mean, maybe the first thing to jump in and say is that we wanted to look at English cities. And that was quite deliberate because, in a way, we wanted to look at places that shared a national context. The Welsh, Scottish, uh, Northern Irish context is different again. And we wanted to kind of think about, okay, they're in the same national position, they're in the same nation, but how are they different nevertheless? So that was the first thing to say about how we, the reasons why we didn't look North of the border, or or, or or to the west. Alison, do you want to say something about the cities, or shall yeah, I? Yeah, well, I'll, on? I'll, I'll start <laughs> with this. Yes,
5: I mean, in a way, we we started with Brighton and Manchester because if you're looking at queer life outside London, Brighton is the you know longest, sort of most prominent. Uh, queer city and its longevity outside London and Manchester is not far behind. So, and these days people think of, yeah, Brighton in the south and Manchester in the north, and these are gay hubs. And in fact, they have always have been in the sense that they were always important for their um, local areas um, and Manchester across the north, Brighton across, well, not only the south of England, but um, across the whole of Great Britain. So Manchester and Brighton were kind of, um, yeah, Obvious choices. And the other cities, well, I was living and working in Leeds, and I knew it had a very interesting history. And Leeds is also is, I mean, I I mentioned Manchester as being quite a radical political city, but so is so has Leeds been in a different way. You know, it's it's just across the Pennines from Manchester, but it's had a very interesting history um, in terms of lesbian feminism. Uh, particularly in the 1970s and early 80s, when there were huge campaigns against violence against women. Lesbian separatism was very strong in Leeds. And, yeah, that whole culture of living your life as a lesbian outside of patriarchy and and without men in it. And I think in terms of the city's culture, that was really important in the 70s and 80s and, of course, has longer-lasting effects. Plymouth is really really interesting in a in a different way. I don't know if you want to say anything about Plymouth Matt
4: uh, I suppose one of the interesting things about the choice of the four cities is is also that we chose two northern cities and and that kind of sense of i suppose of what we'd imagined would be regional rivalry, you know, between between Manchester and Leeds. And so what, in a way, two cities that were quite proximate, but, but you know, in a similar gi- geographical area, but how different they were and why. And in a way, there's something similar issue in our choice of Plymouth. You know, we had one South Coast city and Plymouth um, was a second, albeit much further away from Brighton than Leeds was from Manchester. But we were interested in the distance you know it's well re- it's the most isolated of our cities it also has a very clearly different economic base it's a naval city it's based around the docks it's very different from the kind of service I- in industries that characterize brighton or the industrial characterization of manchester for example so we were keen to pick cities that had a different kind of economic base, but were also different demographically. So Plymouth is actually the most homogenous city in terms of class, in terms of ethnicity. And we wanted to see what, what, what that meant for queerness. And it did play out in really interesting ways in contrast, for example, to much more mixed cities like um, Manchester or, or Leeds. And and also by, you know, in a way, Brighton and Manchester were obvious, as Alison said. We were keen to choose places that weren't obvious, because actually, just because something isn't obvious doesn't mean it's not queer. Um, and I think we wanted to think about what that meant in relation to cities which didn't immediately pop up into people's minds.
5: Yes, that's that's very true. And each city has also seen quite a lot of change over time. So certainly Plymouth Leeds and Manchester are both now post-industrial cities, but you know, in the 60s they were, you know, they had very different economies, whereas now they've become a lot more orientated towards the service sector, their universities have grown, and that's important for Brighton, Leeds, and Manchester in particular, in in kind of enlivening and developing the LGBT scenes and cultures. But yeah, they've all seen change over time. Um, Plymouth has seen change in the sense that uh, lesbians and gay men were prohibited from serving in the military until the year 2000. And so, you know, from the 60s right through to the 1990s and beyond, you know, there's been the culture in Plymouth of... Well, to use their own terminology, you know, were operating below the radar, being proud in, in in almost passing, without too much notice. Which doesn't mean to say they, they didn't have a strong lesbian and gay scene. They did, but um, yeah. So that's changed quite a lot in the 2000s and 2010s in Plymouth, whereas in Leeds and Manchester, the you know the, the political context was really really different. I mean, Manchester's gay scene really came alive in the 80s when, you know, it had a huge music and clubbing scene anyway, and that became queerer in the 80s, and particularly in the 1990s. And it also had a city council which supported um, lesbian and gay rights from the mid-1980s, and that support in Manchester has been sustained over time. So I think it's probably the most preeminent city council to have supported LGBT rights continuously. I mean, London, of course, has has and and London boroughs have done so as well, but in a more kind of on and off manner. So the sort of local politics in Manchester, plus the clubbing scene, meant that Manchester really kind of took off in the 1990s, and the Gay Village came out of that, Um, and so it it really got put on the map. Um, And in you know, in its its post industrial self, has become particularly queer, certainly as far as the city centre is concerned. And you can see some of those same processes in Leeds as well.
4: The other thing that that Alison's highlighting, which is so interesting as well, is the way in which the complexion of pride, the feeling of pride, is different between these cities as a result. So in Manchester, people are proud of being Mancunian because of what the city council has done for has done in terms of that sustained support and they're proud of being gay alongside so that mancunian and queer pride or mancunian and lgbt pride are quite closely interwoven in a way that we don't see in the same way in other cities Um, so there's something really interesting and and like and and as 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 alison said you know down in plymouth there was there was certainly a pride but it was a pride in not being visible in managing to negotiate the kind of naval work and the tight family culture, um, and and not not putting your head above the radar, whilst also having lots of fun and having a having a community, so there's a kind of different complexion or feeling or texture to to, to pride in these places.
5: Yeah, so so each character, each city has got its own sort of queer character because we could also bring Brighton in here and say, well, Brighton's always been has always had this bohemian flavour. It's, it's a city without industry. I mean, it had a service sector, but it's a city of small businesses. It's a city of entrepreneurs. Um, it's, it's a city of arts and, and culture. Well, I mean, all the cities are, but Brighton, it's perhaps particularly dense. So in Brighton, and this is actually a very long standing, there's a feeling of of lgbtq exceptionalism so queer people who live in brighton believe that they live in the best place uh, you know in the country or possibly on earth <laughs> and it's a place where you can be freer as a as a as an lgbtq person than than anywhere else so there's this free, f- feeling of freedom and agency and being able to sort of go about your business but it's which is also in a way a bit more individualistic than in particularly in perhaps manchester and Plymouth, where there's quite a stress on community still. Um, which is not to say that Brighton doesn't have a sense of queer community, it does. But yeah, there's this really strong sense of, of it being um, a place where as an individual you can flourish.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
5: Yeah, we need to remember the community of the past and we need to sort of still hang on to that LGBTQ set of identities ideally yeah in a friendly and community spirited way
1: this episode is brought to you by indeed we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster
3: You mentioned briefly councils and how they've responded differently across the different cities to different issues. For example, Manchester's council um, was perhaps more supportive than other councils were at the time. So I wanted to ask, how, how have these different cities experienced key moments in LGBTQ history Differently, so for example, you, you speak on different case studies in the book. We've got the, the AIDS crisis in the eighties, um, the decriminalisation of male homosexuality in ni- in sixty seven. Um, what are some of the differences in how these places have, have addressed these moments?
4: So, so, I suppose the most the, mo- the most obvious example is the one Alison highlighted earlier. Which is, you know, this this kind of supposed landmark of 1967, the partial decriminalisation of homosexuality, which in Plymouth meant next to nothing, because because the need for discretion in a relatively small city, where lots of lots of family and friends worked in the same workplaces, where the where family networks were very tight, where the navy was so important to the local economy, it was absolutely pivotal that you r- remained under that proverbial radar. Um, and so the bigger the bigger moment in Plymouth, in many ways, was was the year two thousand when that legislation shifted around gays in the military, not nineteen sixty seven. And it's interesting that same piece of legislation in Brighton. I often think when I was look, thought when I was researching Brighton that actually people in Brighton were already behaving as if what they were doing was legal. <laughs> there was a kind of disregard already for the law. Um, and so when it changed, in a way, they carried on, maybe maybe a bit more out there, but not but not in any sense that this was something new. And I think it's worth noting that in Manchester, and part of the reason, I think, for the radical upsurge in Manchester, and also the, act, the, the kind of commitment of the local council from the 80s, was the fact that despite the 67 Act, The local police uh, force in Manchester, James Anderton most famously, but also his predecessors, took a particularly draconian stance um, against black and gay people in the city. Um, And as a result, I think the the kind of, again, the 1967 Act made very little difference because the police were finding all sorts of other ways of arresting and, and persecuting and prosecuting gay men in particular. So in each of the cities, you can see this national legislation playing out in quite different ways because of particular local circumstances. And I think I could say, I mean, I'd say the same about Clause 28 and the way that was kind of received and, and played out. Alison, do you want to fill in Clause 28?
5: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Clause 28, the activism around Clause 28, um, ori- uh, originally, yeah, Clause 28 eight, and then Section 28 was the... Uh, 1988, the Thatcher government um, brought in this clause to a local government act, saying that homosexuality should not be promoted, particularly in education, but also in local government other local government activities, and that the idea of homosexuality as a pretend family relationship should not be should not be promoted in any in any way. And it had a very it had a very dampening effect on what local, on what a lot of local authorities felt they were able to do, though not all of them. And so there was a huge political mobilisation of, of lesbians and gay men in the, in, in in 1988 um, around Clause and Section 28. And this does play out differently in our different cities. I think perhaps Brighton is the example that we that that seems to emphasise the way in which it brought a whole range of diverse people together. It brought together lesbians and gay men who'd often been separate previously um, in their politics and in their social lives, um, although not entirely. It certainly brought together different age groups. And so it's kind of ironically created a sense of stronger community in in cities like Brighton because they were doing so much organising, so much working with each other. Various people in Brighton went on tours of Europe to publicise this, um, this, this appalling prospective piece of legislation and also tours around the country as well. So it was a kind of big mobilisation of lesbian and gay activism that's also true of the other cities. I mean, Manchester saw the the, the 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 largest political rally in its history, which was the Section Twenty-eight rally that that happened outside of London in nineteen eighty-eight. And there are some fantastic images of you know the the, the Central Square being absolutely full of of lesbians and gay men, and you know, train loads going up to Manchester and coming across, and that helped. That also helped establish Manchester as a as a gay city. That people understood that that there was a a great party scene there. That the local council was being supportive, and so on. So it certainly um, mobilised people in Manchester, and and in Leeds actually, where lesbians and gay men came together. Um, although I think that really waits to the nineteen nineties for 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 the kind of. The sex segregated nature of LGBT politics in in Leeds doesn't really dissolve until the nineteen nineties. Plymouth, I suppose, is really really different because while while it would be unfair to say there was no activism or interest in Section Twenty Eight in Plymouth, it was very muted. You know, there were there Plymouth was not a place for altern- alternative politics. Full stop. In you know in a big military city. It was impossible to mobilise, or very difficult to mobilise around the peace movement and so on in the seventies and eighties, although people did try. So there wasn't so much of um, yeah, a lesbian and gay politics against Section Twenty Eight in Plymouth, although at the time there was. People do look back to the eighties and think about the the importance of of the gay scene in the eighties and uh, and yeah, the importance of lgbt community then so yeah so we can see how the how some of these political events play out differently also with aids which hit the the cities Mm -hmm. differently which met
3: was it manchester was supposed to be a bit of a better place to go for for treatment was it
4: or how they dealt with people what was what's so interesting about brighton in various respects as opposed to manchester actually is that it's very dense you know it's it's blocked in by the South Downs and the sea. And and the housing is very, is cheap by jowl. Um, and it's got a relatively small population. And so all of these kind of events, I mean, Clause 28, I think Brightonians were just incensed. Like, <laughs> how dare you tell it? How, how very dare you? You know, they'd, they'd, they'd been living this life, actually having loads of fun. And somebody comes along and say, no, actually... Nothing in the libraries, nothing in the museum, thank you very much, nothing in schools. And they were like, there was a sense of being incensed, particularly because it came at a moment when very visibly within Brighton, people were dying and becoming ill. And, you know, there's virtually nobody in Brighton living in the, who lived through the late 80s and through the 90s that didn't know somebody that was ill and dying. And I don't mean gay and lesbian people, because queer people knew lots of people who were ill and dying, but everybody had workmates, neighbours, friends of friends who were ill and dying. And that level of impact, I mean, it did actually have the highest per capita rate of um, of HIV and, and AIDS cases of our four cities. So, So there's a kind of statistical fact behind that. But also just this proximity and intensity meant that AIDS hit Brighton especially hard and it hit everybody hard. And I think that coincided both with a particularly unproactive local council and a particularly homophobic press and the national press descending on Brighton to find and report on AIDS cases and and, and, and life in the context of the AIDS crisis and doing so in exceptionally homophobic terms. And so the kind of life of queer ease that I think we we characterised Brighton having in the 60s and 70s. By the late 80s, people were really angry because everything had turned had turned around. Um, and there was a combination of anger and grief there that was really quite intense and changed the character of community. So I think the community that you had there before was very much about flamboyance and fun. In the 90s, it was about flamboyance and fun. And a really decisive and quite hard-edged sense of community and community from below, in in Plymouth with much lower HIV and uh, rates of HIV and, and AIDS cases. Um, what was interesting was that there was a mobilisation, but it was not via the grassroots and the community. It was via local health authorities um, and and some volunteers and so on, but it was much less mobilised from below. Um, and I think you could say something similar about Manchester, that there was a huge mobilisation from, from below in relation to HIV and AIDS, but it was met with a sympathetic ear by the council who mobilised in response to. So you got this kind of different kind of um, sense of of, of, of of kind of a city acting in cohort with its queer residents, which I don't think you get to the same extent um, in in um, in Brighton, where there was a mobilisation from below, or Plymouth, um, where there wasn't that mobilisation from below, but there was some action on the part of the local authorities, albeit somewhat. And, and, and
5: I think also in Brighton, that combination of the AIDS crisis and Section Twenty Eight itself galvanised people to record their own history. So the the practice of recording your own community queer history started. Earliest in Brighton, at least um, in terms of a kind of wide-ranging project, uh, project which um, co- uh, run by Brighton Now Story, which was um, community collective, and that starts in 1988. Because of this indignation that you know the libraries, the archives, nobody wants to hear uh, LGBTQ voices. You know that they are, you know, robbing us out of of the past as well as the present. So let's collect our own histories. So that in itself feeds into the sense of community in Brighton.
4: And, and that quite moving, I mean, I found quite moving the sense, the sense that Brighton, our story emerged from a kind of political erasure through Clause 28, but also the erasure through death. And that sense that actually there was a, a real importance and significance to gathering voice, like literally to be heard and to have a, have a presence in the soundscape.
5: Yes, because they, they had, um, there was a great phrase that they used right in our story about the importance of of remembering, you know, themselves as lesbians and gay men, as they mostly were at that point. They talk about, you know, we're not ghosts in the past. We're not ghosts, you know, telling our kind of stories that are fading away. We're here and we want, you know, we want this to be recognised. I wanted to ask
3: about the specific stories of some um, queer people that you interviewed as part of your book, because we've talked sort of uh, more broadly about the statistics and the activism. But I-, I was just wondering, were there any stories that really resonated with you that you could perhaps give
4: um, our listeners a little bit of a taste of? And the, the interview that maybe stands out for me most, maybe we could do one each, but the, the one that stands out for me is a, is, a, is a guy called Dennis, in Plymouth, who was so fascinating because he went to Plymouth as a sixteen-year-old to join the. He was a submariner, um, and he didn't kind of know he was queer or didn't see himself as queer, and forged a kind of family with his fellow new recruits. And they would go out on the town together. They shared uh, dorms together, and there was. But the, and the way he describes it, it sounds like this wonderfully kind of like intimate family in inverted commas, but not, a, not, a, not one bounded by sex, but by an, a different sort of intimacy, which is bred of working together and going out together and so on. And yet also they seem to kind of be quite drawn to these places in Plymouth that were also a little bit queer or were quite mixed. And so he gives this quite poetic, quite moving account of these years. And then he married, he had kids and was eventually felt himself kind of drummed, even though it was post 2000, felt that his job had become untenable in the Navy when, when people started to realise that he was gay. And he goes on in his story to talk about, oh, how brilliant it was, all the legislation in the 2000s and, you know, equal age of consent and civil partnerships and, and so on. And, and he was ostensibly quite celebratory about what had happened in the latter part of his, uh, of his story. And yet what was so interesting was that the apparent successes were tinged with a kind of nostalgia for that earlier period. And what he hankered after, in many ways, was the late 70s and 80s, when he found a sort of sense of camaraderie and community, which you couldn't say was gay, but gave him something that he hadn't managed to find in the 2000s. And there was something really kind of interesting there for me about how we think about progress, that ostensibly things are better. But for Dennis, maybe they didn't feel that much better. And what he what he wanted was the feeling of community that he'd had as as a young rating in in, in, in Plymouth in the seventies and eighties. Um, you know, before actually he'd attached an identity to himself, or attached a queer identity to himself.
3: What about you, Alison? What's in a case study that you particularly liked?
5: Well, there's there are so many wonderful stories, but I think the ones that that I like best are the ones that kind of encapsulate moments of change, and the way that people negotiate those changes. And I was quite interested both in migration, why people moved into those cities, but and also how they lived in those cities. And so my case study that I'm going to talk about is Jess, who actually Matt interviewed, (laughs) to give you the, the original credit for this. But Jess is a black lesbian who Started off in the 80s in Bradford. I think, you know, that's where she was born uh, born and brought up, which is part of the sort of Leeds, Hinterland, the West Yorkshire area. She moved away from Bradford because she didn't really like the lesbian separatist politics, which were really strong in Bradford as well as in Leeds in the 1980s still um, and into the late 80s. So she chose to move to Manchester, which she saw as a much more open city And its scene there was a much more mixed one of lesbians and gay men, and already in the early 90s, people who called themselves queer and, you know, well, perhaps they hadn't used the term non-binary, but it was certainly a much more mixed and diverse scene in, in Manchester. So she certainly moved to Manchester for its clubs and party scene, but she was also able to do that in the early 1990s because, like many people who moved to Manchester and Leeds and stayed there, she... She became a student. She was a mature student and because it was still the 1990s and not the late 1990s, she got a university place as a mature student and got, and really importantly, got a grant to live on. So that enabled her to to migrate to Manchester. And indeed, it did fulfil all the, um, you know, all her expectations of it as this, you know, big queer city. And she, she again talks particularly about how she felt welcomed because the city council had um, put on a summer of lesbian love in the 1990s. So she felt very much part of that as, as a lesbian as and as a black lesbian. And indeed went on to raise a child in the um in the what was then the lesbian-friendly, well, it still is a lesbian-friendly suburb of Chalton. It's just that now it's become much more expensive as a place to live. So Chalton's a sort of leafy suburb just outside inner Manchester. So she was, you know, living in Manchester into the 1990s and into the 2000s. And then she tried living in Brighton for a couple of years. But talked about how as a black woman there and as a black lesbian, she found it very difficult and quite racist as a as a city. And indeed, you know, the population is really different. It's very it's much more white in, in Brighton as it is in Plymouth than it is either in Leeds or Manchester. So she talked about how uncomfortable she eventually decided she felt in Brighton and moved back to Manchester Where she felt the politics around race was much more sophisticated, it was much more diverse, and so she found it um, her her chosen place, if you like, not the place that she originally came from, but her chosen place. And I think what Jess's story shows is the way that a lot of LGBTQ people, I found, moved around quite a lot. You know, they might have ended up in one of the four cities because that's how we know about them. But they had stories, particularly the women, actually, at least as much as the men, of trying out different places to see if they suited them. And so she was circling around these different cities, finding a place that was comfortable, that was accepting of her of her range of identities effectively you know as a lesbian as a black lesbian as a parent and 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 indeed as a northerner come to that since you know she is a northerner so this it's this range of of ways that people identify in different parts of our lives that i think stories like Jess's show and she like many people found manchester a very comfortable place because it was so big and diverse in and in different ways people you know found Brighton comfortable and other people found Plymouth comfortable particularly people who moved back to Plymouth for its for their family connections which were very important to plymouthians
3: i wanted to ask is it do you think it's important for young people today especially young members of uh, the lgbtq community to remember our past and where we came from especially we're in pride month at the moment and we've got Pride coming up. It's interesting because within my, with my peers, we we look at Pride and it's it's fun, and we go there and we have a party. And it's almost like we've we've forgotten a little bit about all of the activism that was inv- involved with initial Pride. So, do you think? How do you think things have changed? And how do you think that we should be looking looking back onto these histories?
5: I mean yes we absolutely think it's important that everybody should know about their queer their queer past um including allies and you know non queer identified people and of course a lot of the community projects that we drew from specifically aim to integrate different generations of people, to get young people involved, to hear about the past from older generations. And they point out that they, you know, you don't hear about the queer past from your family because they may well, if you're lucky, there might be another gay person in your family, but the chances are there won't be. So you don't hear stories passed down in your family. You don't get taught it in schools. And so it is really important to to know about the LGBTQ past. And I think there's a sort of tension in a way between you know how quickly things have changed in the 2000s in particular, so that people very easily forget how... Different it was before then. I mean, now it's it's completely normalized, well not completely normalised, but pretty normal for you know same-sex marriage, it, for people to anticipate that they can marry their same-sex partner, settle down and have children. Whereas, you know, 25 years ago it was so much more difficult. So from Plymouth, for example, there's a an appalling but typical story of a woman um, called Lynn who in the mid mid nineteen seventies, had to give up custody of her children to her violent ex husband. When she came out as a lesbian, she talks about the abuse her children suffered in school once it once it came out that she was she was a lesbian, and from neighbours who before had been you know her 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 friends and 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 local community and even about how her own solicitor in the divorce case was, was extremely unsympathetic to her, her position. But, of course, she and other women also described how they kind of came through that. They find, found ways around it. She didn't completely lose her children. She remained in touch with them, and indeed they all remained living in Plymouth. And that kind of you know horrible story about how difficult it was to create um, a, a, a queer family... So, you know, some of that, you know, it was still quite difficult. It was still very difficult to adopt or foster children as a lesbian or gay man, you know, right into the 2000s. Or it had to be done in quite complicated ways. So I think the, you know, those difficult elements of the past, I mean, it's important that people know about them and and how much things have changed. But the tension, there's, there is also a tension in that young people in particular can easily think about the, the queer past as, you know, unremittingly horrible. <laughs> Whereas the, you know, the evidence that we've found and that is all around us is that obviously people lived, you know, much more um, successful lives in the 1960s and 70s and 80s and 90s, you know, that, 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 that people had fun, they found partners, they set up home, albeit in, in more challenging circumstances. It, the past isn't, the gay past, the, the, the queer past isn't all doom and gloom.
4: I completely echo that. I mean I think the couple of things that I'd add in. The first is that in a way I kind of we exist or we're couched by the past anyway. So whether you consciously know it or not when you go to Pride and Party you are in a historical environment. The badges, the the date, all of that is is a, is a history that has 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 kind of been layered up and, and kind of couches those people that are celebrating now. And the same going to particular bars and clubs and so on. You know, there's a sense in which we're entering a history just by entering a community and an identity. And I quite like the fact that that's not always consciously owned, that it just, you know, that history just is around us. But the consciousness is really important for the reasons Alison said, you're know, not least remembering the fun, but also to kind of see the warning signs. So the culture, the current kind of culture wars against trans people is very, very familiar from the 1980s and the culture wars about, against gay men, lesbians and single mothers. I mean, the tactics are similar, the language is similar, the marginalisation is similar. And so actually knowing that bit of history, I think my ears have pricked up much more quickly over the past Four or five years. I think that's why knowing some of these this past is important, as well as celebrating and just existing within it.
5: The history of community is so important as well, because often older people said, Oh well, I miss that sense of pride or pink picnic or whatever being mainly for lesbian and gay and bisexual and trans people in the past. That there's some there is a bit of a loss, which we kind of touched on earlier when you're supposedly although not always accepted within you know mainstream society but you're only accepted on certain terms you know if you're if you've got money to spend in the more commercialized gay scene if you're you know if you're acceptably in a in a couple with somebody who you could marry if you're not um yeah if you don't kind of frighten the horses in a way so i think there is that sense that yeah we need to remember the community of the past and we need to sort of still hang on to that lgbtq set of identities ideally yeah ideally in a in a friendly and community spirited way
0: you were listening to matt cook and alison oram their book queer beyond london is out now published by manchester university press Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.